You can give me the church's one foundation and be thou my vision, and I will never, ever get bored with it. So if any of you all are bored with any of the classic hymns, my apology, it's all on me. I don't need variety. These, but I mean, I can't help think about the words to that song. Shouldn't that be our prayer as we enter the world? I mean, I think of the psalmist in Psalm 119 who said, Open my eyes, Lord, that I may behold wondrous things written of you in the law. And I know for a long time I thought, why would I want to see wondrous? It's kind of like Job. Why would I want to see just things in the law? And then I thought, the law points to Jesus Christ. It points to the fact that Jesus Christ was the perfect human being who lived the life I should have lived and lived the law of God, loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loved his neighbor as himself. And so the wondrous things I see in the law is Jesus Christ living the law, and I see Jesus Christ dying for my inability to keep the law. And so may our eyes be open to see the beauty the breathtaking beauty of Jesus Christ. May our hearts and our goals be to see, to know, to be captivated, to be gripped by Jesus Christ more by our time in his word this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace in giving us this word. I'm not worthy to be delivering this word. This is your word to us and we exalt you. We praise you. And we ask that you would illumine our hearts and open our minds to the beauty of your word and the truth of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. And one more time, if you're able, I'd ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 24, friends, hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. That's a lot, isn't it? You took it all in? That's easy stuff to comprehend, right? Well, I would say that's so much that, guess what? We're going to take two weeks to go through this. And I love, I, Vic, I so agree with you with the providence of God because it's amazing. I have to admit that when I began this week, so I began looking at the text, and look, I wasn't thinking to myself I was going to take two weeks to go through it. And then I thought, well, there is so much here 
that I need to give some background and perspective and teach on this. And then I thought, what a wonderful promise. Chuck Garriott's with us next Sunday. And so I teach, and then Chuck will teach next week, and then you will forget everything I've said today. <laughs> and so in two weeks, I get to say, let's do it all again. See, I've been doing this pastoring thing long enough that I know you all will forget a lot of what I have said. So what are we doing? We are going through this section of scripture, Romans chapter 9 through 11, which deals with the issue, has God's word failed? Okay, this is not a political passage. Okay, so let me throw out some wrong interpretations, okay? You're looking at Israel and going, oh, wait a second, maybe I'll turn on the news later and see if it's agreeing with what Jeff... No, don't turn on the news later. Forget all of that. That's not the issue the scriptures are dealing with. The scriptures here are dealing with the fundamental issue, is God faithful? Has his word failed? Is God righteous? And of course, the answer is that God's word has not failed. As a matter of fact, if you look at this, I hope you noticed something when I read verse 14, kind of along the lines of, wait a second, I've read something like this before. Because guess what? We have. Many times as we've gone through. So like chapter 6, Paul continually uses this rhetorical device of what shall we say then? Which means based on previous teaching. Like when he gets in the end of chapter 5 and he says that grace may abound, right? He says, well, what shall we say then if grace is going to abound? That means I get to do whatever I want. And of course he says, my paraphrase here, that's a stupid question. Of course not. Does it again at chapter 6, verse 15, chapter 7, verse 7, chapter 8, verse 31. So, of course, when you get to verse 14, and he's teaching on divine election, the sovereignty of God, he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? It's kind of, do you ever notice? It's almost like he knows what we're thinking, and he knows the objections ahead of time. Kind of like you hear about these doctrines of election and the sovereignty of God and predestination, and he's waiting from the audience to kind of go... Well, that's not fair. Is God fair? Is God just? So what does he do? He throws out the question. And he says, what shall we say then? Or is there injustice on God's part? And of course, again, Jeff Birch paraphrase, preposterous, of course not, by no means. And he goes on to expound even further on this particular doctrine, the doctrine of election. Now, remember last week I said that the doctrine of election is a particularly controversial doctrine. And, of course, I don't want to avoid it just because it's controversial, but I do want us to approach it in a biblical but in a certain way. We need to approach it and communicate it with a great deal of humility. We cannot assume we know all the answers. It is not only okay, I would say it's even advisable to say at a great deal of points, I don't know. In other words, here's what the scriptures teach, but all the answers to all your particular philosophical questions, I don't know. But as St. Augustine said, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it is not the gospel you believe, but yourself. So yes, it's a controversial doctrine. Yes, it's a difficult doctrine that we need to approach with a great deal of humility. 
But, and especially as we move towards Romans 12, verse 1, that says we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, we need to look at how do we have a proper perspective towards this doctrine. And as my thesis is, because I don't think this doctrine, and I don't think the point of theology, in other words, theology is not the end-all, be-all of itself. It is the right, not just important, absolutely non-negotiable, hear my words, essential, but means to an end. And you want to know what the end is? Glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. In other words, when I played sports growing up, my father would always teach, whether it was baseball, whether it was basketball, whether it was golf, he gave me the very simple instructions, keep your eye on the ball. So I don't know that I'm all that great of an athlete, but I think I learned one thing in 57 years. Keep your eye on the ball. I think as Christians, we have to keep our eye on the ball. The goal, the end, in fact, Jesus even said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The goal and doctrine, which if you don't have right doctrine, you won't make the goal, but don't stop at doctrine. Doctrine is the means to the end of knowing, glorifying, worshiping, enjoying, and loving God. So in other words, I want us to be gripped by this, and here's my proposition or my thesis concerning the doctrine of divine election and that is, it is your only possibility for true security. It is your only possibility for true security. Our hearts long for So it's an intensely practical doctrine. Because our hearts long for and scream out for security. We fear, and a lot of us have trauma of past abandonment, rejection. We hurt over these things. We've been betrayed. Our hearts were created for security, need security. Why do you think we sing, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee? Because you are the, God is the only place of true security, and divine election is the only possibility of true security. So why is the doctrine of election your only guarantee of true security? And I'm going to give you two reasons. One is that election is necessitated by our condition, and two, election defines our experience. Okay? So point one, election is necessitated by our condition. And here's what I'm going to do today. This is going to be one of those we're going to stand back, because a lot of times, and we do this, and I think we do this with election and predestination a lot, we get so caught up in the trees, we kind of go, free will, tree, ah, let me study the tree. And we fail to stand back and look at the forest and understand the big picture. And so what I'm going to do, because I know you, you, all were, you all were with me when I was reading that, and you said, oh yeah, vessels prepared for wrath and destruction. Yeah, let's get into that. That's good stuff there. We're going to stand back today, and we're going to look at the big picture. And we're going to look, so we're not getting into every detail of Romans 9. We're going to allude to a lot of the stuff, but we're going to go into more of the details in two weeks, and we're going to give a big picture, a cursory view, and we're going to look at a bunch of other scriptures as well, because as Vic said, was absolutely right. This doctrine pervades the scripture, and I think it pervades the scripture for a very practical reason. It is, I'm going to repeat my thesis, 
It is the only possibility of true security. And God loves us enough. Miracle of miracles. He loves us enough that he wants us to be secure. So let's take a look at this doctrine. In Romans 9, the entire doctrine is rooted in his character or his justice. Thus, verse 14 says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And then my favorite Greek phrase. See, you all can learn Greek this morning. Me genoito. Impress your friends at lunch. You know, if they ask you, do you want to pass this? Me genotoi. By no means. Okay? So now you know a little bit of Greek. Now, one thing we have to remember, and again, perspective. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds, which means it's not just what we think. It's not just the right information. The way to approach Scripture is not we're pulling out little pieces of tasty nuggets. But transformed by the renewing of your mind is also teaching us how to think. And that means perspective is important. And so one of the things in terms of perspective and in renewing our minds, we need to recognize when we approach and interpret and apply Paul is what Paul is doing is he is interpreting and applying Jesus and his teaching to particular churches. One of the things I love about the scriptures is its literary unity. You know, not only do we say the scriptures and its original autographs is inerrant and it's infallible, but when you look at it and it's been written over centuries, please marvel with me at the absolute unity of the Bible. So one of the things I want to show you this morning is how Paul is interpreting and applying the message of Jesus. So let me give you one particular example. In John chapter 6, Jesus makes this amazing claim. He's talking about how he's the greater Moses and bringing the new exodus. And he says, I am the bread of life. And then basically, so in other words, he's saying all that's manna, quail, all of that from the exodus. They weren't the real thing. They were pointing to me who's the real thing. And of course, if it was 2020, you know what happened next? 2020, it would have been a Twitter war. But instead, what they had was this hot debate. I am the bread of life. What are you talking about? And Jesus makes this, in the context of that, let's call it heated debate, Jesus makes an even more extraordinary claim that he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now this is an astounding claim. Do you hear what he's saying? Okay, he's talking about divine election, but I want you to notice a couple things, especially if we're going to have the mind of Christ. Let's make our starting point Jesus' starting point. And notice where Jesus doesn't begin. Jesus doesn't argue about free will and fairness and all of these unanswerable type questions. Instead, he begins with something called the human condition. And he says, no one, and notice this next word, can. That means no one has the ability. You can have all the free will in the world, but you don't have the ability to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The starting point for Jesus is with our ability or inability. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. That means that Jesus is claiming here that we never seek or choose God unless God first seeks and chooses us. And he doesn't choose us because we believe, we believe because he chooses us. He's saying, since no one can come to me, There must be an intervention. 
There must be a divine intervention. Someone must intervene, and that someone is God, who, to open your mind and heart to the beauty and truth that you are suppressing and repressing. And I love how one pastor put it. He said, it's a very difficult doctrine for a lot of people, but one pastor put it this way. He said, the doctrine of predestination is like a piece of hard candy. It has a very hard exterior, but once you get inside, it is incredibly sweet. It is hard on the outside, but if we are willing to get inside, it is unbelievably sweet. Now look with me at the sweetness of it on the inside, because first, it reveals that God is a God of sheer grace. See, we say we understand grace, but no, we don't. Rick was absolutely right when he was good. We don't have a clue about grace. We think we do, but we don't. See, no one can come. And we need to understand, when we get to Paul in Romans 9, he's applying these words. No one can come means that there's nothing in you that earned God's love. His love was unconditional. See, many people will say they understand grace. They understand they're saved by God's grace. But if you push them and you ask them, why are you a Christian? They may reply, well, because I believe. And if you say, okay, why do you believe? They may say, well, because I repent of my sins. And you say, good, but why do you repent? They reply, well, because I admit I'm a sinner. Now, see, look at this. If you are chosen because you believe, if you are chosen because you repent or you admit you're a sinner, deducing by logic, that means that makes you a little better. You're more open. You're more humble. You're more enlightened. You got to see that you were a sinner. Also, if you're chosen because you believe, then what if you lose what you did to cause God to choose you? If you earned God's love, logic says you can unearn God's love. And that's not a very secure place to be. See, it's not we were saved by grace because of anything. It is we're saved only by grace. Sheer, unadulterated, unconditional grace. How about the issue of free will? A lot of people talk about free will. And again, it's not as simple as that. See, again, this is a category that we tend to come up with and look at things. But I want you to notice something and think about, let's think about free will or liberty for a moment. I love how Tim Keller put it. He illustrated it this way. He says, let's, let's picture the human condition again, because that's where Jesus begins. He says, imagine your next 100 meals are put in front of you. One on your right and one on your left. On your left, there's steak and chicken and pasta and wings and cake and pie and dessert. I know, this, this was an easier illustration, by the way, at 8.30 than it, even for me. I'm kind of going, dang, I'm hungry. <laughs> okay, that's on your left. And on your right are monkey brains with excrement all over it and flies swarming all above I helped your diet there, didn't I? How many times will you choose the meal on your right? Now, you're free to. You have all the liberty in the world to. Go ahead. Chomp away at the monkey brains. Mmm. They're delicious, aren't they? But you would never want to. It's disgusting to you. You can't. You don't want to. It's not a lack of liberty. It's a lack of ability or desire. 
Now that is the condition of every human heart. And this is what we have to focus on. If you're communicating this doctrine with somebody, start where Jesus started, the human condition. Romans chapter 1 says the heart in one sense believes rightly the truth of God. We all have the knowledge of God, but what does it say we do with that knowledge? We suppress it in unrighteousness, meaning we have it, but we don't want it. That the very truth that we possess, we possess in unrighteousness, meaning we believe wrongly. We believe wrongly that if we even draw near to God and worship God, it will be the end of our joy and happiness. And as a result of our suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, it puts us in a condition, quoting Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, of making us dead in our trespasses and sins. So the question remains, what can a dead person do? The answer is nothing. So, come on, dead person, answer. argue about free will. Come on, dead person, argue about fairness or justice. What can a dead person... The starting point, if we're going to have the mind of Christ for this doctrine, is the human condition and our inability. No one can come. I've been here almost 18 years, so you've heard this illustration before, but I'll say it again. It'd be like taking me at five foot three out to a basketball court and, and holding a gun to my head and saying, Jeff, slam dunk the basketball. I can have all the desire, all the want to, all the ability. I could train for months and months. I could pretend I was watching the slam dunk contest last night and get up and run and do behind the back and still jump about a half inch off the ground if I was lucky. Somebody, because I could get two of you strong guys to say, we'll hold Jeff up and we'll hoist him up to slam dunk. You know what that would cause? Me losing my balance and breaking my back. The issue is not will or desire. The issue is ability. The issue is we don't have the ability to humble ourselves, submit, choose, believe, unless someone intervenes. And see, and that's not only then the grace of this doctrine, it's the beauty of this doctrine. See, we're not driven to God, we are drawn to God. And when we ask the question, why did God love us? He gives us this answer. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Do you see what God is saying? I love you not because of anything. Were you all that talented? Nope. You were a big Israel, large, mighty, nope, fewest of all peoples. Why did God love you? Because he loved you. There's nothing behind the love. Ed Clowney was the former president of Westminster Seminary, and he used to illustrate it this way. And I think it's appropriate to say this illustration two days after Valentine's Day. Guys, I'm going to pick on you for a second. Let's say you came home to your wife, your Valentine, this past Friday, and, and you thought you had it all together. I mean, you're there at the door, and you got the flowers and the chocolate. You went both and, not either or. I mean, this was, this was, you were on it this year. 
and you're there at the front door, and your wife greets you, and you give her the flowers and the chocolate, and she says, honey, oh, thank you. Can you tell me again, why do you love me so much? And you answer, well, I plugged the data into the computer, and I found out you would be excellent for my career. You'd be very good and very serviceable, making me look good. You do a great job with the kids. You clean the house beautifully. You take care of all the meals. You do all that. And Dr. Kleine would say, have any of you guys ever seen the sofa? <laughs> See, what does your wife want to hear if she asks you the question, why do you love me? She wants to hear, just because. I love you because I love you. And not only is that beautiful, but isn't that also secure? There's no reason God loves us other than he chose to bound his heart up with ours. He chose, think about this, before all eternity, the father chose to give his son a bride. No more intimate illustration of a relationship. He chose and elected a wife for his son. And he sent his son to go purchase and redeem and restore that bride. And he is now making that bride something called the church, elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth. He's making us radiate with beauty and holiness to reflect the sun. Tell me the doctrine of election is not the most gorgeous, rich, beautiful doctrine in all the world necessitated by our condition. And lastly, it defines our experience. And how does election define our experience? First of all, the doctrine of election is the only thing that can give you humility. Think about the words Rick read in our assurance of pardon. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. He chose the marginalized. He chose the nobodies. He chose the shamed. He chose the despised. And he made them his bride. He made them his sons and daughters. He made them his own, his own treasured possession. So that no one may boast before him. What do we have to boast about? I think one of the most heinous sins in the world is the sin of self-righteousness. The sin of we're always trying to prove ourselves. The sin of trying to vindicate ourselves. The sin of trying to prove our worth rather than receive our worth from Jesus. If we're the bride of Christ, what are we trying to prove? We've been chosen by God to be his bride. Simply because he loved us, it humbles us. And election guarantees our future. You know, it's interesting going back to the John 6 passage when Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him 
it almost reads like an aside, but he added this little phrase, and surely I will raise him up at the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And you know what that guarantees? That guarantees our resurrection future. That guarantees that our future is the new heavens and the new earth. On the last day, he will raise us up. Which I heard it said, and I don't remember who said it, that for the Christian, we will not get as close to hell as we are right now. And for the non-Christian, they won't get as close to heaven as they are right now. Election guarantees your future. It makes it depend on God, not us. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let us hide ourselves in the only secure refuge there is. Let's pray. Forgive us for all the other refuges, refuges we make in life. Forgive us, Father, for all the ways that we will try to stand behind or stand within our performance, our control, our approval, other things we're looking at, rather than hiding ourselves in Jesus. Father, thank you for the doctrine of divine election. I know it's a controversial doctrine, but we thank you so much that you are our refuge, and by your grace we can hide ourselves in you. In Jesus' name, amen.